Podcastle, episode 325, for August 20th, 2014. Down, by Christopher Fowler. Rated R contains violence, gore, and the dark places that lie beneath. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, your host and co-editor. Hop aboard this week as we take you to the London Underground, the oldest underground in the world. It can be a confusing and strange scene, but also at times, an oddly comforting one. There are some very popular genre fiction stories that are set underneath London, and underneath other cities for that matter. Neverwhere is one of my own personal favorites. YA has the very popular City of Ember, and hey, does anybody else remember that old television show Beauty and the Beast with Ron Perlman and Linda Hamilton? I'm terrified to watch it now, but back then, they made the underground culture seem, I don't know, so cool. Not quite border town, not quite steampunk, but a nice space in between. I'm sure that everybody on the forum can come up with a lot of other examples, but really, we're only scraping the surface of fantasy here contemporary fantasy. Stories set with people traveling below ground have been happening for as long as we've been keeping records of literature. Whether it's Dante's Inferno or many ill-fated pilgrimages to the underworld. Down was originally published in The End of the Line, an anthology of underground horror, but don't let that scare you. It is a dark little tale, but if you squint, you might be able to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Now, whether that light is an angel that caused Atlantis to drown and wants to go back to heaven to start a new war with God, well, really, you be the judge. Also, possible spoilers for a 20-year-old book. Really? 20 years? Damn. Anyway, I also want to give a special shout-out to our dastardly friends, Sean Garrett and Alex Hoflick over at Pseudopod, for pointing this story out to us. Thanks, guys. Award-winning author Christopher Fowler has written over 30 novels and 12 short story collections. His latest novel is the haunted house chiller Nyctophobia, out October 2014. He also has the new thriller in the Bryant and May series, which is out now. You can find more details on his website, ChristopherFowler.co.uk. Our reader this week is the great Paul Jenkins, a man who's read quite a few stories for us, not only here, but also at our sister podcast, Pseudopod, and our science fiction podcast, Escape Pod. We'll link to his website in our show notes. Mind the Gap, and enjoy the story. Down, by Christopher Fowler. Honor Oak Reservoir is underneath the golf course in Peckham, Thornhill reminds himself as he walks. That's the biggest subterranean vault he's ever visited an inverted cathedral that's the largest reservoir in Europe, with four great chambers that hold 256 million litres of water, a great heart made of orange brick that ceaselessly pumps life into the metropolis. He would have liked to work on the new Brixton extension at Honor Oak, but there wasn't a position. So he's back here in the tube tunnels beneath King's Cross, moving through the dead, dusty air, looking for circuit faults. He comes down every night at midnight and goes up at 4am. That doesn't sound hard, but there are meetings before and sometimes after. 
and while you're down, you're on the move the whole time. Looking back, he can see the unmistakable silhouette of Sandwich, hopping nimbly across the rails. Sandwich's real name is Lando. He was named after a character in a Star Wars film, and hates it. His mates call him Sandwich because no one has ever seen him eat, even though he's the size of a bear. Thornhill has been down for three years now, and likes the job. The perks are good, his fellow workers are a nice bunch, and he gets regular health checkups chucked in for free. They're all outsiders, of course. Men and women who work down here because they've joined a veritable foreign legion of employees who go below to forget. But he doesn't forget. He goes down in order to remember. Early 1930s, calls Sandwich, in that peculiarly high voice of his. Hoban Kingsway tram station. E3 class double-deckers. Wouldn't have minded driving them. Everyone down here is a bit of an expert on some aspect of the transport system. Some of them could bore for England. Why didn't you become a driver? Thornhill calls back. Couldn't pass the eye test, Sandwich explains. Short-sighted. When I was a kid, I always wanted to drive the 1938 red tube stock. Varnished wood interiors, red and green finish shovel lampshades. They've still got a few on the Isle of Wight. That figures. When they brought in the 67 Victoria Line carriages, I reckon it took most of the fun away, anyway. After that, drivers only had to press two buttons. One to operate the doors and one to start the train. Driving a train now was not much more than an exercise in staying awake. You've got an N3 up ahead, called Sandwich. First stop. They're heading south on the Kennington branch of the northern line between King's Cross and Euston, checking all the junction boxes, looking for an intermittent fault that's showing up on the grid as an irregular power loss, inconsistent and too brief to disrupt service, but a break all the same. Usually there's four of them working together, but tonight the other crew have been sent up to Highbury and Islington, where one of the cleaners has found debris on the line. They've gone to see if any overhead cabling staples have come loose. It could be dangerous if they've fallen on the rails. Thornhill is in boots and the orange boiler suit that makes him look like a Guantanamo Bay inmate. He raises his cage lamp and aims the light on his helmet in the direction of the box, fixed on the wall at head height, where the main tunnel meets one of the side tubes leading away from the now-defunct Thameslink station on Pentonville Road. Such side tunnels are rarely filled and capped. Most get used for equipment storage. Many just remain empty, and a few which run parallel to the main lines are kept clear in case of emergency. A euphemism for terrorist acts. And even the underground staff don't know exactly where these are located. Digging his key from the tool satchel, he unlocks the lid of the box and peers inside. Two rows of green LEDs tell him that all contacts are working perfectly. He's pretty sure that an intermittent fault would register as a flickering light or a red, in which case he'd simply replace the connector. Clear, he tells Sandwich. How many more on this run? Eighteen, says Sandwich, checking his chart. They go all the way down to Good Street. That's going to take us all night. What if it's something we can't fix? Then someone will have to come down with specialist equipment and run a day test on the line, says Sandwich, who has caught up with him. Do you know where all the boxes are? asks Thornhill. They're all on the main southbound except the ones between Euston and Warren Street. Sandwich hands him a sheet with a diagram overlaid on their section of the tube map. He taps his thumb on the remaining pages thoughtfully. 
We could still finish on time if we split up, he suggests. Crews are always supposed to operate in pairs, just in case one gets injured or suffers an attack of nerves. It doesn't happen very often. The LU workers know the dangers and are a pretty careful lot. Sandwich knows that if they take half the line each, they can be back before four, and no one will be any the wiser so long as they clock off together before the power is turned back on at 4.15am. I guess that would be okay, says Thornhill somewhat hesitantly, knowing he will be in breach of contract by agreeing. Sandwich has spent his entire working life so far down here. The tunnels hold no terrors for him. You all right? asks Sandwich. Only when you didn't come in last week. I told you. I had a cold, Thornhill quickly explains. I thought maybe the cut on your hand... Thornhill hides his bandaged knuckles behind his back, self-conscious. That's nothing. I'd had a few. I get a bit angry sometimes. Sandwich is thinking it through, picking at the thought like a scab. Because Thornhill's not actually your name, is it? I only noticed because you left your mobile in the office and saw that it's registered in a different name. I know it's none of my business. You're right, snaps Thornhill. It is none of your business. I mean, we all come down for different reasons. But there's also a reason why there are checks in place. You know? I'm not talking about terrorism or nothing like that. I think I know what you're talking about. You didn't get the Honor Oak job, so you came back down here. It wasn't a question. I didn't mind where I went, so long as it was underground. Fine, Sandwich knows better than to ask why. As he says, everyone has their reasons. Look, I'll go down to Tottenham Court Road and start from that end. You work from here and we should meet up at Warren Street by about 3.30. Without waiting for a reply, Sandwich nips over the rails to the far side of the tunnel and sets off, whistling something that sounds like it's a long way to Tipperary. Moments later, Thornhill finds himself quite alone. He has never worked alone down here before, but he's always known that the practice went on among the more experienced crews. He isn't frightened, quite the reverse, but it still feels strange. Sandwich is a nice guy, bit of a sad case since his girlfriend left him, but he never stops talking, never stops prying and asking questions and the endless to-and-fro of vapid conversation never gives Thornhill time to be alone with his thoughts. Which is a pity, because there's still a lot to think about. The faint swaying light from Sandwich's helmet in the tunnel ahead disappears, but there's still not total darkness. Somewhere further on, to the left, in the curve of the ceiling, there is a grating that allows in a nimbus of pale luminescence. He reaches the second junction box at a point where the main line meets a smaller service tunnel and stops within the circle of darkness to listen. He can feel a cool breeze lifting the hairs at the base of his neck. The tube is beset by these dark zephyrs that eddy and swirl where tunnels meet. You can faintly hear the passing air, but nobody knows where it comes from or why it disappears as suddenly as it starts. Before the 1970s, an army of women used to enter the system after the last train had run, they were called fluffers, and their job was to remove all the dust balls, flakes of skin and human hair that had gathered in the tunnels. People always leave traces of themselves. Improved ventilation has removed the need for the fluffers now, so that the only human beings who venture down here after the tube stops running are the ones making electrical repairs or inspecting water damage. 
Most of the deeper stations have problems with underground wells, rivers, streams and conduits that periodically back up, and it's not a good idea to have water dripping onto electrical equipment. The LEDs in the second box form two unbroken emerald lines. The fault lies further on, so he'll have to go deeper. All of the tunnels heading south descend toward the Thames, which is why the passages are fitted with floodgates. Thornhill can feel the temperature dropping as he sets off once more, passing beneath the dull glow of the grating, turning into the next great brick curve. The steel lines glint coldly in the beam of his lamp. Nests of mice, tiny brown bundles of fur that look as if they belong in country wheat fields instead of the London underground system, turn their black beads timidly up at him, before scampering for cover. He approaches another tunnel entrance, D117, according to his diagram, and wonders if it's the one that was used as emergency headquarters for the wartime railway executive committee. He's read a lot about the tube system since. He's read a lot. He can see there's no track leading inside, and the dust has settled thick and undisturbed, far removed from commuters and cleaners. And there, standing in the tunnel entrance... Swaying very slightly is a young man of about fifteen or sixteen, his outline barely discernible. "'Can you help me?' he asks very politely, but in the kind of cockney accent Thornhill associates with old British films. He shines his torch on the lad's face, and is surprised to see that despite a neat short back and sides haircut, he is covered in dried mud. He wears a dirty collarless white shirt, braces and brown flannel trousers with thick turn-ups. The trousers are wet to the knees, as if he has been wading through water. "'Sir, can you help me?' he asks again. "'What are you doing down here?' asks Thornhill, surprised to find himself unalone. "'I ought to be out of London,' he says apologetically. "'You know, like the poster.' "'What poster?' "'There's a drawing, cartoon-like, of a warden telling off a boy, "'You ought not to be in London.' the Ministry of Health evacuation scheme. We didn't go. My old man thought it was for cowards. I'm sorry, I'm not with you. Where am I? Euston Interchange. I mean, you're underneath Euston Station. How did you get here? Came up from Balham, says the lad, dusting his sleeves. Cor, you should have seen the mess down there. Right old state. It bounced clear down the steps and into the northbound tunnel before it went off. Buried the whole length of the platform in gravel, blew out the walls, ruptured the water mains and flooded the platform three feet deep. You should have heard the screaming. Shocking it was. 111. What? 111 dead so far. We were sheltering down here, 600 of us kipping like sardines. The girl two down from me had both legs blown clean off. The escalators came down, then there was another bang and we looked up through the dust. We couldn't hardly see anything. And there was only a bloody bus gone and driven right into the crater. I think the driver got out all right. How did you get out? Thornhill asks, puzzled. Well, we didn't. The boy shakes his head in sleepy wonderment. His eyelids close and open again. There's dust on them. Do you need to get up top? Can't. Staying down here now. But I thought you might know if I'm going the right way for Bromley by Bow. I've got relatives over there. Thornhill knows he should feel absurd giving directions to a dead man, but tonight it seems like a perfectly natural thing to do. When he's finished explaining the route, his companion smiles wanly and sets off once more with a little backward wave, 
Thornhill stands and watches until his form has faded into the dry black air of the tunnel. He admires the lad's determination. The next junction box proves impossible to open. Water has calcified the lock, so he is forced to chip away with the end of a screwdriver for twenty minutes before he can unlatch it, and the wasted time sets him back. The connections are all functioning, though, so he closes it and continues downward. Sometimes the desiccated air sets off an ache behind his eyes, but tonight he feels fine, rather light-headed and slow, as if he is sinking into a dream. He runs the tips of his fingers along the curving wall, over the sooty fat trunks of cables, heading towards the next box. It's darker now. No overhead light seeping in from anywhere, and the breeze is moaning faintly at his back. That's when he notices the sound of another man, deliberate footfalls planted behind his own. He turns and waits, staring into the dark, until it pixelates into the fractured vision of a migraine. He doesn't like this one. "'Oi, didn't you hear me?' the man calls, his voice an angry slur. Thornhill waits until he has approached, then steps back against the concave tunnel wall. Now he sees the reason for the man's strange speech. He has no lower jaw. He is as repulsive and ridiculous as a ventriloquist's puppet. His tongue hangs straight down, dry and useless, looking as though it belongs to a dog, or perhaps on a piece of luggage. He's dressed in a purple velvet jacket, tall and bony featured, also missing his right ear and eye. The wounds don't look too bad because they've scabbed over, but he's salivating unstoppably as he shuffles closer, something Thornhill finds personal and vaguely embarrassing. Do you work down here? the man demands to know, seemingly oblivious to his terrible injuries. It's hard to understand him. Thornhill can smell strong alcohol on his breath. Yes, he admits, but I'm not a doctor. I can't help you. He assumes they only approach if they want something. I'd had a drink. Of course I had. But it's the others you should be talking to. He's very animated for a dead man. What others? They were on the platform with me. Last train of the night from Bank Station. We'd all been drinking at the Christmas bash. I didn't slip. You mean one of them pushed you? I don't know. Probably. Yeah, I mean, yes, they did. It sounds like he's had plenty of time to convince himself. When was this? Thornhill asks, starting to understand the nature of his visions. December 18th, 1976, says the man, shoveling his tongue back up into his mouth without much success. I hate it down here. I want to kill my mates for doing this, for pushing me. I want to go home. Where is home? West Harrow. You'll need to follow the Metropolitan Line from King's Cross, says Thornhill. Go back in that direction. For a moment he thinks the man will take a swing at him, but the poor creature turns around, almost overbalancing, and slams his hand into the wall, popping his knuckles. Then he heads away without another word. Something is leaking from his ragged jeans. Presumably he slipped from the platform and went under the incoming train. What a state to be in! Thornhill had always half expected this day to come. He had thought, hoped, that perhaps he would see them. But he had not expected them to speak, or to be able to hear him. His heart is beating faster, and he feels even more light-headed. He wonders if he is having some form of nervous breakdown, alone here in the tunnels, 
going quietly mad while the rest of the crews plug leaks and check the tracks for debris. He knows he should probably turn back and hand the remainder of the task to someone else, but he hates to leave a job unfinished. And besides, for some unearthly reason, he finds himself crying. Once the tears start, it's very hard to make them stop. He forces himself to think about the intermittent fault, checks the diagram and heads down beyond the Euston interchange in the direction of Warren Street. Plenty of tunnels around him now, gaping black mouths, like bellowing monsters. Who knows where they all lead? Some of them aren't even marked on his map, as if they're hiding secrets. They snake deep inside the soil of the city, burrowing beneath London in a dark carnival of stone. The arteries provide homes to who knows what. The dead lost and separated from the living. It feels like he's been walking for hours. His boots are too tight and his legs are tired. He has checked eight boxes and found nothing wrong. Coming up to the ninth, he starts to wonder if there really is a fault, or whether one of the controllers has simply misread a meter. But below this consideration is excitement and fear running like a fast-flowing river, the knowledge that everything he has dared to believe is being proved true. According to his watch, it's already 3 a.m., and he has yet to locate the fault. Something small and light brushes against his hair in the blackness, making him start. He swipes his right ear, batting it away, but there is another feather shred flitting past, and another, and he can smell something now, the odour of cooking meat, as if he might enter the next tunnel bend and find a hamburger stand waiting to serve him. The specks touching his face and neck become more frequent. He grabs at one and rubs it between his fingers in the light of his helmet torch. It is a smut, a drifting cinder. He sniffs it and knows at once that it is incinerated material of some kind, and his stomach shifts. He turns off the cage lamp at his helmet torch and stands motionless in the pitch blackness, looking ahead. Sure enough, there's a parabola of flickering light around the corner. It takes him several minutes to pass beyond the wide bend in the tunnel. And here the rails are tricky to negotiate because they pass through several sets of greased points. At first he thinks there are dozens of mattresses lying across the floor. But as he gets closer he realises there are bodies wedged between the rails. Some are burning softly from within like dying embers in grates. At the far end he can see a wall of twisted grey metal torn apart and fused with the surrounding brickwork. Fires burning brightly inside. The exploded train carriage entirely blocks the tunnel. Even the trunking, the bundles of thick cables that form necklace loops along the tunnel walls, has been severed by the force of the explosion. Heading this way, ghostly in the pulsing firelight, hands upon each other's shoulders, like Bruegel's parable of the blind leading the blind, the commuters seek a way to the surface. But as he approaches, they disappear in wisps of burning dust. After all, they are the living and have no place here among the dead. Passing between the fallen bodies, ignoring the groans and the smell of roasting flesh, he walks on toward the source of the heat, knowing that it will disperse along with this apocalyptic vision, a temporal memory sealed beneath the streets in shafts of stone, forever trapped in the terrible moment of a July afternoon, the seventh day of the seventh month in 2005, when a terrorist bomb stole the lives of 37 passengers and injured 700 more. 
The dead must stay down here forever. Only the living may surface. The present cannot exist for long with the past, and so the wreckage disperses, the wavering chain of survivors, each placing the next foot before the last with patience and determination, crumbles along its length and disappears, leaving only acrid dispersing smoke and the melancholy hubbub of departing spirits. Thornhill stands alone once more. What shocks him most is not the scale of destruction, but the sheer caprice of it all. He imagines a thousand families asking the same question as he has asked over and over. Why did it happen to us? Why were we singled out? But of course to provide an answer one needs to understand the workings of life itself, and life must remain unknowable for the spirit to survive. Beyond the crash site the tunnel is clear. He can see the eleventh junction box in the halo of his torch. He unlocks the door and with difficulty pulls it open. There it is, right there, the fault, a winking crimson light on the second row, beyond which there are no more greens. Feeling in his tool bag, he locates a connector, snaps off the plastic end, flips the old one out and replaces it. Then he resets the switch and watches as the lines complete themselves. Job done. He's running late. He'll have to move faster if he wants to reach Warren Street in time to catch Sandwich. He'd like to linger back here. He senses the others are drawn upwards, if not exactly toward the light, then at least to a point where the layer between the living and the dead is thinnest. But he can't afford to keep Sandwich waiting. One thing puzzles him. There has been nothing before this night. No sign that they might appear around him. No reason why they should all turn up now. Perhaps he wasn't ready before. He's ready now. He once read that those who die by the hand of another are the easiest to see. At the far end of the scale are those who die natural deaths. They can never return. But what about the ones whose departures are simply accidental? What does it take to see them? The temperature is dipping lower and the air is slightly damper. He fancies he can smell the river but at least four stations stand between him and the Thames. The tunnel twists to the right, then to the left. He is passing close to the southbound Victoria line and descending fast. That's when he understands, of course. Finally knows what he is doing. He's known all along, but denial is a powerful drug that can erase almost any other feeling. He reaches the Victorian line subjunction and descends via the service tunnel to the lower line. Time is getting short, but he dare not run. There are transverse pipes that can trap your boot and twist it. After three years of travelling through the subterranean maze, he always knows exactly where he is. Right now he is branching off beneath Tottenham Court Road, moving in the direction of Warren Street. Above him are a pair of pubs, a shabby terrace of shops and houses that lead to Fitzroy Square. He remembers how the square looked when he was working nearby on an electrical installation in a bank. The pavements were all dug up. One had a hole running all the way down to the underground line. Down. It comes to him in a flash. The answer has always been right in front of him, but the time had never been right until now. He finally understands and is ready. He looks at his watch. 4.23 a.m. The power is back on throughout the underground system. Sandwich will be out by now, angrily wondering where he is. 
Thornhill looks down at the rails. Without hesitation, he steps up on them and hops from one to the other, crossing the track to the far side of the tunnel. Halfway across, he stops, balancing on the third rail. Slowly and deliberately, he plants his right foot down on the ground. He has a strange sensation, unpleasant but momentary. It leaves him with a feeling of transformation, of departure and arrival. Then he continues to the opposite wall and waits. It isn't long before she appears on the other side of the line, outlined against the wet black brick. She has round brown eyes, dark hair cropped in a French bob, a checkered skirt, a navy blue sweater and knee socks, just as he remembered. So like her mother. She looks over and gravely acknowledges him. He loves the way children do that, the way they look when they're counting and concentrating, taking everything at face value, being very serious. Hello, he says. Where's Mummy? She couldn't be here, Amy. She had to go far away. She lives in another country now. But I'm here. I thought you weren't coming. I didn't know what to do. But I'm here now. It's boring. All the tunnels look the same. I can't find Jasper. Jasper wasn't with you when... Jasper was back at the house. Jasper is Amy's teddy bear. On the day she had accompanied him to his job, he had made her leave it at home. There's no room for Jasper and your bike in the car, he had told her. If only he had made her leave the bike behind instead. She had not been allowed to enter the bank's hard hat area and had gone to cycle in the little green park, the one at the centre of Fitzroy Square. He remembered thinking there was something wrong and running out into the street. Her bicycle lay on its side next to the workman's hole. She had dropped something, a pendant from her bracelet, just a cheap little thing. It had fallen in, and she had gone to pick it up. At first he couldn't see her. It didn't seem possible she could have fallen so far. "'Where have you been?' Amy asked. I've been working down here, looking for you. But I've been here all the time. Her tone is reproachful. I know, sweetie. I just couldn't reach you. If my boss knew I'd taken the job just to find you, he wouldn't have let me come down tonight. Why do I have to stay here? The world above was just a dream, he murmurs. I think this is where our real lives are. Are you going to stay with me? His heart swells to bursting as he rushes back toward her. Yes, of course I am. That's why I'm here. He takes her hand, and it feels just as it did when she was alive, warm and dry. Her touch completes him. Where would you like to go? I don't want to go any further down. She tips her head on one side, considering the question carefully. Up, perhaps. Can we go up? I don't know, he admits. We can try. Sweeping her into his arms, he holds her close, letting her warmth envelop him. Then he sets off with his lost daughter, heading back up the tunnel, toward the world that will always be just above, and only slightly out of reach. And welcome back. 
I loved how Thornhill goes from being a man working in the underground to becoming something of a psychopomp, helping lost souls find their way to the afterlife, even his own. There is a certain modern-day Orpheus quality to it here, I think, but like I said, it was full of death and ghosts, and it's a story as old as time. It's also oddly comforting, too. Here's something else that I take comfort in. Ladies and gentlemen, the Hugo Awards have landed, and now that this story is over, I'm going to drink some mead and swear a lot. Holy shit, you guys! Anne Leckie, our very own Anne Leckie, who used to read story submissions for us, who used to read feedback, who still hosts and reads stories for us occasionally, even though she's no longer our associate editor, we think of Anne as one of our own, and Anne fucking Leckie won the fucking Hugo Award for Best Novel! Fuck yeah, Anne Leckie! We here at Podcastle salute you. We could not be happier. She's not the only winner. Cameron Hurley, whose essay We Have Always Fought, we ran last month, remember? That won the Hugo Award for Best Related Piece, and she won the Hugo Award for Best Fan Writer. Even better, the place where that essay was originally published, The Dribble of Ink, won Aiden Mower the Hugo for Best Fanzine. I'm feeling so freaking happy for all these awesome folks. And a special shout out to my buddy John Chu, who took home the Hugo Award for Best Short Story, which I'm sure we'll be hearing at Escape Pod in a couple of weeks. Also very, very awesome. Congratulations to all the winners. Okay, feedback this week is for Cole Bukaya's Bee Yard, read by Sue Brophy. The story of two sisters, one made of paper, the other who had fire for hair. I think comments on this one can be summed up by those who took the time to respond on our forum with, huh? There were several people who admitted they weren't sure what to make out of it all. Infinite Monkey said, I like that this story turned into a story of sisterhood. It also kicked off a very small discussion on magical realism, which, you know, might be worth checking out, but be brave, friends. Why don't you come on down to our forum at forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's story, and if you like what we're doing, if you like that we feature Hugo-winning authors and essays, that we took a chance to stretch out of our comfort zone and bring you Cameron Hurley's Hugo Award-winning essay, We Have Always Fought, originally published in the Hugo Award-winning fan site A Dribble of Ink. If you like that we bring you original fiction, a story that's never been heard before, from the Hugo, Nebula, and freaking every other major award-winning author and freaking Lucky. And if you like good fantasy fiction that takes you places you didn't expect to go, like this week's story, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single cent goes to supporting content like what I've just mentioned. And we've got some really, really good stuff planned for you in the coming year. So please, if you can donate, a one-time donation, a couple of bucks each month, whatever. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you. That was our show for this week. We hope it made you shiver just a little bit. On behalf of everyone here at Team Podcastle, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week when Claire Humphrey shows us what happens to the life of a master fencer after she's been a master fencer and haunts. Until then, keep reaching for the surface. And whatever you do, don't.
look back. We'll see you next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from none other than Edgar Allan Poe, who said, No one should brave the underworld alone. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.